We live in a changing world. Just just months ago, we were going about our business without a clue as to how different the, our world will look on April 11th, 2020. And it's it's worrying, even frightening, as we see the number of those who have died climbing every day. Change can happen very, very quickly, as even Mr. Weston emphasized a couple of days ago as we began the days of, of, of unleavened bread. But change can happen even more quickly, because as of Wednesday, 83,000 people around the world roughly have died from the COVID-19 virus, and that's a tremendous number of people. But five and a half years ago, the power of 23,000 atomic bombs was unleashed in just nine minutes, as an earthquake in the Indian Ocean unleashed killer tsunami waves that killed over 230,000 people and destroyed communities along the coastlines of 14 countries. Waves 100 feet high, in some cases, destroyed countless homes in the Boxing Day tsunami, and the entire planet vibrated one, the better part of one centimeter. For hundreds of thousands of people... Dramatic, destructive change occurred very, very quickly. Nine minutes of an earthquake, and as I said, more than 230,000 people were killed. So change and dramatic change and dangerous change is part of our world. We're experiencing it today, but it's been a constant theme in the history of our world. Change is all around us. And change has always been part of the human experience. And change can happen very quickly. But change doesn't always happen quickly, does it? Because some change is fast, very, very fast. But other change is slow, very, very slow. In fact, so slow that it's imperceptible until many years have gone by. My wife and I just passed our 32nd wedding anniversary, and we were looking at some pictures from our, our wedding. We have one picture um, of the time that we were courting before we were married that's sitting on our piano, and I'm not proud to say that I'm twice the man that I was then. Uh, change has happened over 32 years that uh, I would like to see reversed in some ways, very slowly, almost imperceptibly, until you look back at some of those pictures. And, and not all change is bad. Some change is bad, and some change is destructive, but, but other change is good and necessary, and in fact, critical. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we read this familiar refrain during the days of 11 bread. We read as Paul speaks to the church at Corinth, and he describes a, a situation, but he gets right to the point in verse 7. He says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, let's change from one way of thinking and being to another way, to a better way. The days of unleavened bread are about change, aren't they? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we read in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Not like that, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says that you put off then, change, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So these days are, you might say, a a flag, a symbol, a reminder of the change that is supposed to be happening, happening in us every day for the good. But the reality is that we as humans don't necessarily handle change well. We're creatures of habit. We like familiarity. Our friends, our favorite food, our opinions. We like familiarity and we don't change easily. Exodus chapter 16, we read about the Israelites that really are a reflection of us. I was reading about some of these characteristics of us as humans and I was reading an article in Psychology Today that talked about the truth about uh, 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 why change is so hard for us. And it listed a number of reasons as it described this condition that we have as, as humans that prevents us from changing easily, especially changing good habit, into good habits from, from bad in terms of exercise or diet or some other destructive habits. Uh, Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3, we see this element in... Israel, as they journeyed from Elam, verse 1, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. We read about this here the other day on the, on the first day of unleavened bread. just want to highlight the lesson here, which is between Elam and Sinai here, the wilderness of sin, that is. On the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And verse 3 is where I want to focus. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hungry, with hunger. When you think about the Israelites here and you read about their, their behavior, what we recognize is that Egypt was, was tattooed on their minds so permanently that, that no miracle could change them in terms of the hardness of their hearts. Let us go back. Let us go back. It was better back there. It's not unique to the Israelites, though, because we flip to the other end of the Bible, and we read in John, John chapter 6 about those during the time of Christ who had the very same uh, attitude towards change. John chapter 6, and let's see, we'll begin here in verse, let's begin in verse 30. Here, Christ was actually uh, was actually leveraging the lesson 
of the Israelites and the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven, as he spoke to the people here in beginning in verse 22. But let's pick it up in verse, in verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And, and so what they're doing is they're comparing. They're thinking back and they're saying, What can you do compared to this miracle that we have as part of our heritage? That is receiving manna from God above. What are you going to do to compare to that? And, and so, as they said, verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the word. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. As you read his explanation of the true bread that was actually symbolized by the bread that the Israelites received, what do we see? Beginning in verse 41, down through the bottom of the page, the way it's laid out in my Bible, you see the heading is that he was rejected. Rejected by the Pharisees, even rejected by some of those who followed him at that time. Some of his disciples who followed him at that time, they were not willing to change their worldview. They were content in the status of the sons of Abraham and the people of Moses. And when he began to explain the real meaning that was symbolized by the manna, by the promises to Abraham, they wanted no part of it. Change happens fast. And change happens slowly. We resist change, and yet we're commanded to change. We're even given a, a seven-day, holy day season to, to focus on change, as we're doing now. So this presents a conundrum. As I've described here, the challenge, we're commanded to change, and yet it's not so easy, even for us, with God's Spirit, but it is our, our task and the conundrum then is, presents us a challenge and also uh, a title for the sermon today, which is Change Fast and Slow. Change Fast and Slow. And, and so here's our roadmap for today. We're going to look more carefully at change in the Bible with an eye to what we can learn from the examples that are preserved for us. What can we glean from these examples What's God trying to tell us? So let's begin. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4. And we'll begin here in verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so we find here that these were the first two individuals who were involved in IT-type uh, uh, activities because they were, they were networking. That's a joke, by the way. Um, so we'll continue. So they were casting a net into the sea, networking, for they were fishermen. And verse 19, then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, verse 22 then, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So we see they had to act decisively in a really short window of time. Change happened very fast for them. Change, dramatic change, was put right in front of their their eyes, was was given right to their face, a challenge to change, to do something different, dramatically different from what they had been doing, and they had to decide what to do very quickly. Let's go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, this was a pattern that was continued, because Mark chapter 2, we read about another disciple, Mark 2, and we'll begin in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Change what you're doing. Drop everything and follow me. And we see verse 14. So he arose and he followed him. So we see an example here. As he began to call his disciples, they were faced with change. Abrupt change, fast change. And we see they followed. They, they accepted his challenge and they followed him. Let's look at another example of fast change. So we'll look at fast change first and then we'll look at slow change. Change that happens slowly. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. The first challenge that we saw of fast change in the Bible here was Christ's challenge to his disciples as he called them. Here's another challenge that involved his disciples. Matthew chapter 26. Here we're reading about his, the, the week of the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26. And let's begin reading here in verse, uh, let's begin reading in verse 47. Verse 47. Uh, now, getting uh, a running start at what's happening here, we can see that he is the, the prayer in the garden had just occurred. He had he had been praying, and his disciples had had fallen asleep, and we understand all of that, and we come to the point immediately where he was arrested. So we're going to pick up the story there, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. Verse 47, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. So we see the story continues down in verse 57. Verse 57, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So we see within just moments, they went from walking the dusty roads of of Galilee and Judea and being taught by their master into this, this maelstrom of drama. It was a drama that involved ultimately thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. It involved political intrigue, and ultimately even there was a certain tension between the most powerful leaders of the land there in Jerusalem and Judea and the Roman Empire. From one end of the spectrum of walking peacefully to this scenario, that was a drama that brought the whole city into an uproar. 
And they saw their teacher being dragged away from them, thrust into the national limelight, ridiculed, scorned, beaten, humiliated, stripped naked for all to see, beaten and tortured, murdered in the most terrifying of circumstances, all within just really hours of what we're reading here. Their lives, their lives were abruptly changed by circumstances that were really far, far out of their control. How did they act? How did they respond? What would they do? Fast change, for sure. Let's look at another example. Let's go to Acts. We were just in Acts here a few moments ago. And let's go back to Acts chapter 2. You know, after what we just read, just to scratch the surface, I, I know, but we just read the tip of the iceberg there and began thinking about what was going on. You know, when you think that things could not get any more dramatic, they did. And this is what we read about in Acts chapter 2. When the Pentecost, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them, utter, uh, gave them utterance. So unbelievable. You have here the, the sound and fury of, of a hurricane. Uh, the power of an electrical storm with lightning fire. I mean, if you've seen electrical storms with lightning, it's, it's, it's fire. It actually, it, it actually smells, you have the ozone, but then it smells like burning even uh, if it hits a tree or something. You can smell the burning uh, smell of, of the wood, of the ground where it's been scorched. There's a, it's, it's fire like what we're reading about here, this fire that came down and instantly not electrocuting them, not killing them, but instead they had been changed. No, There was no doubt of it because those around them heard them speaking instantly. And, and like a, it was like an undoing, you might say, of the Tower of Babel 2,000 years ago, a reverse of what happened there, and all could understand them in this one instant. Fast change, to be sure. Now, we have one more disciple to visit. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And let's read about Saul, who became Paul. Then Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we, we read of Christ's teachings and the followers of Christ's teachings being called those who were of the way at this point in time. Verse 3, as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So they knew something dramatic had happened very quickly, but they didn't under, understand it. 
Saul here, he, he was actually quite astonished and had very, had a very specific experience that was very meaningful to him. And we see verse 8, Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So with a blinding light, so immediately God changed Saul's whole life. The one who became Paul, his life changed fast, very, very fast. So our, our lives are punctuated by moments of fast change. Now one moment, Abraham was minding his own business. Um, the next moment, God said to him, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. We read about that in Genesis 12, don't we? Think of Noah. Life was tough for Noah as he lived proclaiming godly righteousness. We read he was a preacher of righteousness. And never did he expect that God would speak to him and say, The end of all flesh has come before me. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. What was Noah to say to that? How do you answer a statement like that? I know what I would have said. I would have said, what's an ark? And my next question would have been, what's gopher wood anyway? I know what a gopher is, but gopher wood? So just imagine for Noah the dramatic change that happened very abruptly. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 6. And Moses. Moses was walking along, happily tending his sheep. Uh, The biggest thing on his mind perhaps, was keeping on good terms with Jethro, his father-in-law. And when out of the blue, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And Moses said to himself, Moses? Well, if he said to himself, I'm thinking he would have said Moses. But we read that he said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Little did he know that his life would veer dramatically away from the path on which he was walking, both literally and figuratively. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 3. But change isn't only fast, is it? And life isn't only about fast change, is it? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we read here the account, and I'm just going to summarize as you, as you look at Genesis chapter 2 into chapter 3, we read of the account fundamentally of God working with Adam and Eve, teaching them, explaining as to how to live, giving them instructions. We read here about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he was instructing them. He was instructing them about the Sabbath day in the first part of chapter 2. He was instructing them about marriage here in the latter part of chapter 2. Very, they had a, very clearly, God was working with them, instructing them, teaching them. In chapter 3, we read how they made a, a poor decision, a bad decision, and they chose to follow the deceiver, Satan, as he tempted them into rebelling against God. 
but yet we still see God working with them, right? We can read how he's the one who then he chastised them, and we read of the consequences of their, of their decision, but we're reading of a time where God was was interacting with mankind. In fact, in chapter 4, when we read about Cain murdering Abel, who, who, was, who was dealing with them here? It was God, right? So we, we read here early in the in the account of God working with mankind, the, the God who created us, the God of the universe, the God who knows us inside out, explaining his laws and his ways to mankind. And within just a matter of a page, well, it's not a page in history, is it, in time. It's over a long time. It may look like just a short period of time in our Bibles, but we see that within a matter of let's say over a thousand years anyway, more than a thousand years, we see this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6 then. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How did the earth go from God teaching Adam and Eve directly to wickedness filling the earth. I mean, that's like the opposite end of the spectrum. How does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens day by day, week by week, year by year, slowly, incrementally, step by step by step by step, to the point where over, again, as I said, more than a thousand years, we see that the earth became so completely corrupted that every human being, apart from Noah, as we read here in verse 9, as we, as we read verse 9, let's come to verse um, 11. Let's begin in verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, verse 12, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, verse 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them on the earth. So we see it had come to that point. And only Noah was not evil before God. It happened like grass growing. It happened like the, the weathering of a rock, like the growing of a tree, slowly, barely perceptibly, yet changing, 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 and changing. Look at society's, deteri- society's deterioration today. And look how we've come from that point when God gave mankind a fresh start to where we are today. Did it happen overnight? No, it happened slowly. Through one kingdom, one nation state, one civilization to another, but ever so slowly... Ever so imperceptibly, if you think of each day, there was no major change, by and large, of humanity as a whole, where there was instant evil, day by day, imperceptibly, change happens. Change is slow, just like change is is fast. Revelation chapter 2, we read here in just verses, we read about hundreds and hundreds of years of history. 
We read here in verse 2, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we read about the Ephesian era of the church. That went up till, what, John, after John's death, we're talking about up to uh, 135, 150, however you count it. We're talking about generations. We come to the era of Smyrna. And again, we begin roughly after Polycarp, Polycrates, and we go for, we're talking about 250 years. And as we go to the time of the Paletians in the uh, verse 12, the, the Pergamus era, we're talking about, again, a period of three to five hundred years, depending how you, you, you count it here. But we're t- when we look at it, we look at it as six or seven verses. But if you lived in that time, change would likely have been virtually imperceptible from decade to decade, much less year to year or day to day. But yet it did happen. Change did happen to the point where these different eras rose and fell. They were, God, they were brought into the truth by God, and then over a period of time, they lost that truth, fell away from the truth in one cycle after another after another until here we are at the last era of the church of God. So church history, again, is a story of long, gradual, incremental change. Change, then, is an integral part of physical life. I've talked about fast change, and I've talked about slow change. But it's always happening. Either the grass is growing or it's dying. Either we're, we're moving forward or, as, as we've seen here in the, the pages of the Bible, either uh, we're moving forward for good or we're deteriorating and we're going in a, a direction of, of ill or wrong. And in fact, if you think about it, the four basic laws of physics describe change. Uh, the classical, the law of classical mechanics, the laws of motion. What is it talking about? It's ch- talking about change in position. Uh, electromagnetism. We're talking about uh, light. What is light and how does light work? Relativity. Thermodynamics. It's talking about change in energy. So if you look at the, the, the earth, you look at the world, you look at everything physical, it's all about change. Fast change, slow change, but it's all about change. We are about change, and the physical world is about change. And the days of unleavened bread are about change, or translated into biblical terminology, repentance. See, at this point, what we've basically done in the story today is is what we do as we begin the days of unleavened bread, where we identify the reality. As we go into the days of unleavened bread, we identify unleavened bread. As we are looking at change, we're identifying what it is. And and we focused on change being fast or slow. But you may be thinking about another characteristic of change. And that is change for the better and change for the worse. And I've touched on it as I've gone through. But in terms of understanding application of what I've just talked about, what do we do? Because we face fast change. We face slow change. Many times we have no part in it. We're actually subject to it. Sometimes we create it, but we face it. 
how, how then do we apply ourselves? How do we navigate and, and even create change, both fast and slow? So let's focus on that, on the application of change on, as part of the picture at this point then. And what I want to do is I want to go back to the same examples that we visited earlier. And, and as we do, first we learn something about navigating fast change successfully. I focused on fast change first when I was describing Christ's challenge to his disciples as he called them. And he said, follow me. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4 then. And I did not read the whole story here. Matthew chapter chapter 4, but let's refresh the um, the account. We see in verse 18, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. And we said, he said to them, verse 19, he said, follow me. So we read that very quickly, abruptly. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And then we read about James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and they followed. So we see, in terms of fast change and how they dealt with it, how did, how, the question is, well, then how did they react? Well, we saw they, they reacted in such a way they changed. They followed him. They went with him. They made a decision. And let's look at a different example in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Because we have a contrasting example of the same type of scenario in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. In this case, we see a different response. Matthew chapter 19, and let's go to verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So, in a sense... What we find is a young man who is confronted with the circumstance, again, of a challenge by Christ, an opportunity. That opportunity had not always been there. It suddenly appeared, and here was the master right in front of him, teaching him. And in this case, we find that he didn't grasp, he didn't perceive the opportunity. He was short-sighted. Instead of looking at the ultimate potential of serving and learning from the master, the creator. Instead, he was thinking of his, of his possessions, and he was thinking of his own life. So we see a contrast here. And what's, what's the difference? And how do, we, how, do, how do we characterize the difference between the two responses, that of the disciples who followed him, who became his, his uh, close inner core of leaders, and this individual, and others like him. I only pick this one as an example of, of others. What, what's the difference? Well, it's simply this. One group of indiv- individuals had the perception to learn the lesson, to get the point. The other did not. 
In other words, to navigate fast change, we have to learn through to see through the dizzying spin of change and to fix our spot, our, our eyes on that spot on the wall like a dancer as she twirls. And, and we see a, a, a bit more about how the disciples exercised this perception, this ability to learn here in, Ma- in Luke chapter 5, in Luke's account. So let's, let's go over to Luke's account where we actually read a bit more about the disciples and Christ calling them. Luke chapter 5, and we begin in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from him and were washing their nets. Then verse 3. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Notice that. So Simon was there. And it says, and ask him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down this net. Now notice the attitude here in in, in terms of of Simon and what's happening here. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And so now, verse 11, So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. In other words, the point I'm making is that we find here that Simon Peter and we see James and John listed here as well. They were listening. They were learning. They were, they were perceiving what was happening here. It wasn't just that they were catching a lot of fish. There was something in what was happening here. This was someone special. This was, this was important, and they were thinking about the dramatic change and learning what had to be learned, perceiving what had to be perceived, and following Christ. Now, we find the same thing happening in the crucifixion example here. Let's go to back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We see the example here of how Christ was teaching them a lesson, even establishing different symbols to help their perception. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. We, we're reading scriptures that we've read over the past few days. And, and let's look at them again, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit, this fruit of the vine until... Uh, 
from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we find as you read through this section here that Christ was teaching with them, working with them. He was working with their understanding to prepare them for the dramatic events that were to come. It's about learning. In order to handle fast change, it's about perceiving, learning, understanding. And so let's let's look at uh, John chapter 13. Pick up that same thread because we see it's highlighted here. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to look at a little bit more with um, Matthew 26. Let's go back there. I don't want to read the whole section here, but just touch on a, a couple of things here. Because as we go through uh, verse 31 through 35, we find the event that was, was mentioned in the sermonette. Here was, there was a, 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 what would you say, a, a preview to what was going to happen. So the lesson could be learned when it did happen. And so he says, verse, verse 31, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Peter wasn't alone. But the stage was being set for learning through what was going to happen over the next day. And and so Christ taught them. He he laid out what was going to happen. He established even different symbols to help their perception of what was meant to be learned from this dramatic change that was going to happen. And as a result, they were able ultimately to gain and to benefit from fast change. John chapter 13, a couple, couple of verses in John 13 I wanted to highlight. Verse 7, we read John chapter 13 and verse 7, where we're reading here about um, the washing of the feet, and verse 7 highlights that. And then later in verse uh, 33, I want to come down to verse 33 because uh, I want to specifically point out this. Verse 33. Here Christ began to say, Listen, children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. And so now I say to you. So he was saying something is dramatic is going to happen so that they could perceive the reality when it did happen. Now, not to say that they perceived it instantly, but rather quickly they figured out what was going on with Christ helping and explaining after his resurrection. But but it's about being able to navigate through fast change is about learning. It's about perceiving through God's help and understanding. We recognize that, but that's the important uh, point here. So Christ helped them to navigate this dramatic change by teaching them the lesson, by helping their perception. There's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? If I take an aside here for, for a moment, how do we navigate dramatic change? Is the solution to complain? Is the solution to focus on the problem so much that we can't see the forest for the trees? Is that the solution when we face fast change? Or is it to step back and say, God, help me to understand the lesson. 
What am I missing? What should I perceive through what's happening around me? And we don't have to guess. We don't have to uh, look for a, a, a sky rider riding in the clouds above us. We can look to the Word of God to provide that meaning with His inspiration. That's why He prepared it for us. That's why He preserved it for us. We don't have to guess, and we don't have to wonder. And, and that's why all the effort is made through the work to print and to publish and to, to distribute booklets and articles and telecasts about, about prophecy. Um, these provide perception. They provide understanding. Just think of all the titles that, that actually provide perception and understanding of what the future holds for us within the years to come. When, when there are times of dramatic events and dramatic change, well, the groundwork is being laid. You may think of our, our 14 signs announcing Christ's return, a booklet that focus on, focuses on the meaning of dramatic events that are happening, that will, that are in the, in the works and that will happen as we go forward. But, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I just did a quick, uh, glance at some of the more, more recent articles that, uh, that fall into this category. And the January, February, Tomorrow's World magazine had an article from, uh, Mr. Ames titled Seven Signs of the, of the Second Coming of Christ. Other titles, Who or What is the Antichrist? The Prophesied Day of the Lord. Um, Doomsday and Armageddon. Prepare for Armageddon. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of articles that are doing this very thing, giving perception and understanding so that we and those that are then taught through these messages can learn lessons and connect dots when change happens fast. See, with the help of God and with the teaching that we receive, we can do this. We can navigate fast change. But we can't just focus on the change itself, the problem, and the dramatic that happens in the world around us. We have to learn to have the ability, through God's help, to perceive the lesson. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's go back to where we were in the uh, sermon at again for a, a moment. And just focus on Peter's words in verse, verse 14. We saw this dramatic miracle in the first few verses, but then in verse 14 we read again, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he talks and he applies a, uh, a passage that talks about the, the, the God's Holy Spirit being poured out. Verse 22, here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Did he get the picture? Did he understand what he was supposed to learn from Christ? What was Christ telling him? This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen to me just in the next day, or even previously as he began to, to give hints as to what was coming. Did Peter understand it? Yes, he did. And he boldly proclaimed it. 
He said, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Wow. What Peter perceived and understood about what had happened during that very dramatic, less than a week really, wasn't it? He got the picture. That's how we navigate change, by learning, perceiving, and understanding what is happening around us. We can see the same thing in Acts chapter 9 when we continue the account of of Paul, or, or Saul as he was called in that time. We'll just turn there very briefly and keep moving. But Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 9, as you read the last half of the story, you read how Saul was confronted with what was going on. He says, um, let's go to verse 15. Here the Lord said to him, as we, we break into the story, but the Lord said to him through Ananias who, who had taken care of him and baptized him. He said, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Get to verse 20, and it says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He got the picture. He understood what was going on. He perceived what he was supposed to perceive. And he was able to navigate that dramatic change in his life because of it. So the first key in terms of navigating and, and working through fast change is to understand the lesson, to have the perception, the wisdom, the discretion, the understanding through the help of God to see what to do, what we're supposed to do. What is the lesson instead of focusing just on the problem? There, there's another Part of the picture, I'm just going to give one other key in terms of changing fast, and we'll talk just for a couple of minutes or a few minutes about changing slow. And that is, that is this. The first, the first lesson I've been talking about, the first part of it you might call perception, if you just want to use one word, perception in terms of fast change. If you want to pick out a, sec- a word for the second part of navigating fast change, it would be anticipation, anticipation, or Otherwise termed, get out of God's way. Get out of God's way. So Exodus chapter 12. Again, I'm not going to read the whole chapter by any means, but Exodus chapter 12, if you'll turn there and take a a glance at the topic here, we're reading about the Passover instituted, which certainly we've read thoroughly up to this point. But we read here in verse 29 about the the death angel passing over the land. Verse 29, It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of of livestock. Well, what we find is that God gave them, there was was a a dramatic event that was going to happen, happen, but God gave them a warning, didn't he? He explained to them what was going to happen. And he explained how they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the the doorposts and on the lintel. So he gave them the ability to anticipate the change. And God does that, doesn't he? He gives us warning. And if we'll just get out of his way 
instead of trying to say, to hold on, God, maybe some of the Egyptians uh, shouldn't be touched by the death angel. Can I share my blood with my Egyptian neighbor? Um, I've got a hundred questions about it. No. God said, do what I command you to do, or your firstborn will die as well. Get out of God's way, because God has a plan. And don't think that you can do better, or you have a better plan. Instead, let God carry out his plan, because if you do, then God will see you through the results. And this was a challenge with, with Israel again and again, wasn't it? They weren't willing to allow God to work the miracle that he wanted to work for them. Instead, they had to argue with him. So again and again and again. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Let's go back to the the disciples where we see a a similar bent that we have as, as humans. Matthew 26. In this case, it's the disciples. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And I intentionally avoided this before so I could talk about it now. We, we read earlier in the chapter about um, uh, Peter declaring that he would never be made to stumble. Here we see in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I I kiss, he is the one, seize him. We read up to this point. Um, I want to go to verse 51. Verse 51. Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Basically, Christ said to Peter, Get out of God's way. There's a plan being worked out here that you don't understand. Even though I have told you about it, and you can anticipate it, and we, we saw ultimately they learned the lesson, as I talked about in the first point. But I'm talking about specifically here, specifically here, Peter was trying to defend Christ, the, the creator of the universe. And Peter just needed to get out of the way and let Christ's plan be carried out. So we learn a lesson just from from uh, Exodus chapter 12 and and uh, Matthew 26 and other places in the scriptures I could give examples but I, th- I think you get the point there there are dramatic changes that require us to to get out of God's way but it does appear that when this is the issue and this is the case he gives us the ability to anticipate the change if we'll only listen Think about, for example, Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah. God had a plan what he was going to do. Abraham tried to argue him out of it. Lot tried to resist. But God had a plan that was going to be carried out. And, and, and they were war- he gave warnings. Think about the future. In Matthew 24, we read about a time when there will be signs that will, will indicate that there is to be a fleeing to a place of safety. And the same thing in, in, in the book of Revelation. We, we read about 
instructions that anticipate what to do to be able to get out of God's way and do what He is, is planning to do and in the, mo, in, the, in, the, in the action of doing. You know, sometimes we, we have to ask ourselves, are, even in, uh, in events and daily events, are we getting out of God's way? Think about politics today. We can get caught up in the politics of today, as was mentioned a little bit in the announcements, and, and yet God, do we think that God doesn't have a plan? Do we think that God doesn't recognize what is happening in politics? Uh, we can watch news all day, but our grasp of it will be like a grasshopper. God understands what's going on. Do we need to get all embroiled in it or worked up about it? Don't think so. What about what, what's, what's happened in terms of the church over the last 20 years, 30 years? What, what about where we are today and, and the confusion that results from all different groups here and groups there? And, and sometimes we can get worked up about it. And, and, and literally there, there are people who, who actually still, I find, sometimes get a bit worked up about, about what happened with the demise of the church after Mr. Armstrong died. And, and I, I have to ask, are they self-deluded? Do they not think that God knows what's going on or had a, a hand in orchestrating in some way, shape, or form allowing things to happen such that those, I mean, we read about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about factions being revealed so that those who are approved may be recognized. So, so can we not allow God to be in charge and instead focus ourselves on God and his ways and what we should be doing and the warnings for us in terms of our attitude and all of those things? We need to get out of God's way, let him do his job and do what he, he requires of us. And that's what Paul really was inspired to write the church in Second Thessalonians chapter two, when he, he 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 talked to them about being confronted by apostasy, and I'll leave that uh, for you to look up. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, seven, sixteen, seventeen. He, he what does he say? He says, "Look, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by our word or our epistle. Establish yourselves in every good work." And so on. That's that's what he what he said to them when confronted with apostasy, which was the topic of the chapter. There there are instructions. There's a, a reminder. Okay, I guess I better go quickly and talk about slow change, which does seem like a bit of a a, a controversy, doesn't it, or, or a, a conundrum? But uh, be that as it may, we'll talk about slow change quickly. Um. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We know that we're prone to deterioration. I talked a bit about deterioration of nations and peoples. Uh, we know that it happens to us physically, don't we? We know that our body deteriorates. It, uh, it, it, it doesn't hold up as well. It doesn't, um, it doesn't reproduce itself, replicate itself on a cellular level as we go through the years. We, we recognize that happens slowly. But there can also be positive change. Positive slow change. And let's just focus on that. Positive slow change. Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. A familiar challenge. He says, verse 15, 
Be diligent. Just going to read the specific challenge here. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent. In the King James Version, we read study. It's translated study to show yourself approved. In other words, it's study indicates and diligence indicates regular incremental change. Regular incremental step by step Day in, day out, positive change and understanding of God's ways. That's what we, when we read to grow in grace and knowledge, it's the same theme. Growing day by day by day by day. And we know that incremental change is powerful, don't we? Incremental change is, is the way that we really grow when we want to learn an instrument. It's the way that we really improve when we want to develop a friendship. Uh, when we want to learn carpentry or teaching or speaking or cooking or or baking or training a dog or child rearing or building a marriage and in all kinds of different ways across every possible walk of life and activity of activity of life incremental change is powerful building habits and building lives uh, there's a, a book i'll just recommend the book to you because um don't know that i'll have time to read uh, much of it, maybe just a little. Uh, it's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Atomic Habits. And it's subtitled Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. And, and what, what he talks about here is the power of, of small changes on a regular, consistent basis. And the, the beginning of the book, actually the first chapter, specifically talks about the British cycling team beginning in 2003. They'd gone through literally decades of, of poor performance until they got a new coach whose name was David Brailsford as its director, I should say, of its program. And as the story goes, the uh, professional cyclists in Great Britain had endured nearly 100 years of mediocrity. Since 1908, he writes, British riders had won just a single gold medal at the Olympic Games, and they fared even worse in cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. In 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. As he goes through and he describes the changes that Dave Brailsford made over the course of the next years, he describes tiny, minute changes. Changes in, for example, in the trailers in which they hauled their, their, their bikes, their bicycles as they were going to, from one place to the other, they painted the sides white on the inside so any speck of dirt could be seen so it wouldn't interfere with their finely tuned, uh, bicycles. Their, their gear, their helmets, their, uh, the, the suits that they wore, their outdoor riders began to wear indoor suits so they would be more aerodynamic. And, and what he talks about is every, the coaches or the director's um, uh, concept was every possible area of the program make small changes. Because if there's a change of 1% here and 1% here and 1% here and 1% here and 1% here, those changes add up to wins. Now, we have this, I think we should recognize the same principle in our lives. Because if we can make a change today, if we can make a small change Today, and then do that tomorrow, and then do that tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and then the next day, and the next day. What we're doing is we're actually creating a, a system, not just a goal. You know, 
What God does in order to establish change for us slowly and incrementally is not just establish goals, but establish systems for reaching those goals. In other words, if he were to just simply say to us, love your neighbor, do it. That's our goal. We're going to want to love our neighbor. In one year, we're going to love our neighbor better, and we're going to love God better. Now go out and conquer. What's a goal? A goal without a system is just an idea. It's a hope. It's a dream. It's an objective. It's a want. It's a desire. But there's no path to get there. And so what the gentleman in, in this book talks about is, is systems. And guess what God talks about? Systems. So he gives us the Ten Commandments. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7, "...teach them diligently to your children." And talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Day by day, in in incremental uh, uh, amounts, teach your children and teach them and teach all of us in small ways about how to love God and love our neighbor. And that's what the Ten Commandments give us. They give us a system. And if we, as we function with that system, then we do learn to love our neighbor. But it takes time. It takes a period of really days, weeks, months, years, decades, where we become then one who truly, as God, loves our neighbors. Here's an important thought, and that is this. When we we actually put into motion the power of incremental change, we build the ability to respond to fast change, don't we? Because if you're, if you're a, say you're playing baseball, if you are a good hitter and you've built the good fundamentals in hitting, what's going to happen is when you're throwing a curveball, you can adjust because you learned all the right fundamentals. So you don't just have to learn to hit a curveball. You, if you learn the fundamentals day in, day out, you can hit a curveball and a slider and a changeup because you've developed the skills to manage what life throws at you. And, and that's the way it works with us, with slow change. If we can develop slowly p- powerful patterns of living, what happens is we can be able to, to manage those curveballs curve of life. I want to go back as we wind up here to the account of Peter. Let's go back to Luke 22. I appreciate um, Mr. Dawson actually laying the, uh, the, the groundwork for uh, my, some of my concluding remarks here because I want to go to Luke 22. I, I want to read about Peter as, as well. And you think about Peter and the changes that that Peter went through, and, and as actually Mr. Dawson was highlighting and uh, specifically about Peter, and I, I just want to focus on just a small part of it here as they wind up. Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, and we're going to go to verse 54. Having arrested him then, we read, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now, he had gone through some dramatic, just nerve-rattling, un- unexpected, um, just 
just discouraging events already. And we see verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I did not know him. And verse 58, After a little while another said to him, saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Verse 60, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And verse 61, and and Mr. Dawson referred to it. I want to focus on it just a bit more. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. There was a seminal moment where we find that, that Christ, he looked at him. And I, you know, for many years, I guess, when I would read this, I would, subconsciously, I suppose, I, I guess I didn't think about it that much, but I, I always had the idea that he sort of glared at him. Oh, a tu brute. You know, it was, it was, in other words, you've stabbed me in the back. You have, now you've turned against me, and you denied me these three times. Boy, I'm going to get you. Now, I'm exaggerating just a little bit here. But in other words, I think the, it can almost be as if Christ was hurt by Peter's denial. But, but is that the case? In other words, was Christ surprised that he denied him? He told him he was going to deny him. He knew ahead of time that he was going to deny him. Was Christ shocked? I can't believe that you denied me. No, no, he wasn't. If everything that we see about Jesus Christ holds true... When he looked at him, he looked at him, and his eyes were not piercing and angry, but they were, they were forgiving, and they were with a recognition and an understanding of our weakness, because all of us have denied Christ, and he's looked into our souls, and we, we can, we know that. There are times when we, 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 we don't have words to enunciate our, our repentance, and our, our, our sorrow, and how we don't want to live this way, we want to live that way, and we know that Christ can see right to our very core, and yet how does he look at us? He is merciful, and he allows us to repent, and I can only believe this pivotal moment when he looked at Peter was a moment where he, in a sense, said to him, it's okay, I'm with you, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm also going to be resurrected, and I'm going to see you again. Uh, We're going to talk about this, and I'm going to help you to become the man of boldness that I have determined that you are going to become. And that struck Peter like a sledgehammer. And we see, he, as we read in verse 62, he went out and and he wept. But it led to what we read in Acts. Again, we could read Acts chapter 2. Let's go back there, but let's just go a little bit farther because we see not only did were we seeing this change in Peter in Acts 2 as he, through this, this dramatic change that happened very quickly, built upon the slow change of three years, three and a half years of, of teaching and walking with Christ and learning, and it all crystallized now where we see in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John, now this is after 
chapter 2, where we read of the boldness with which he spoke in Acts chapter 2, and we go forward. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. This is a man who knew what he was about, and he had no doubt in his mind about what was about to happen. And verse 4, we, or rather verse 5, he says, So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Whoa, what a, what a difference here. What happened to Peter? The man who denied Christ has, has learned and he has, his, his own, his, his character has been galvanized and God, Christ began to use him in a way that was intended from the beginning as he began to work with Peter. And he took him, verse seven, he took him Verse 7, by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And the story doesn't stop because we find in verse 11 down through verse 26 how Peter preaches boldly here in verse 11. So boldly that people were running together to hear him in Solomon's porch. Ultimately so boldly that he was arrested in chapter 4 as we read that. So we see here change in a, a really exciting way. That for Peter, he, he actually began through what he learned. He began to be the, the instrument that Christ had trained him to be. What an honor. What a wonderful thing to be able to fulfill what God has in store for us, in mind for us. But we have to be able to, we have to be able to navigate through change effectively. Because what we're going through today is only the beginning of a life of changes that's going to continue for us. We understand it, no matter what this next year or the year after brings, we know prophetically that a lot of dramatic changes are in the offing. And certainly for us, even in our own lives, we, we face unexpected changes that make and shake us to our core. But yet, whether it's a sickness, whether it's an accident, whether it's a job loss or job crisis, whether it's a change in the congregation, a close friend moves away, a new pastor moves in perhaps, or someone's given a job that we've formerly had and we've, we've filled and, and we're disappointed and we have to change in that way. The change is... is is going to be part of the unexpected, but it's also going to be part of the expected. Our baptism, our marriage, the birth of a child, taking on a new job or responsibility. Sometimes we have the ability to create change in our own lives by, by our own efforts and with God's help in a positive way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We need to prepare for those flywheel moments, those pivotal moments of fast change, by being grounded in the stabilizing truth of God's Word, and also growing through the days and weeks and months and years of slow change. And you know what? There will come a time when there will be a change that will be much faster than any 
atomic bomb. We, when you read about what happened in, uh, with the Boxing Day tsunami at the start of the sermon I read, it was as if 23,000 atomic bombs went off. That was the power of that Boxing Day tsunami. Yet, we have, humanly speaking, now there are, are thermonuclear bombs that are each, uh, what, each unit equals a million tons of, of TNT. So, bombs that are, their multiples, many, many times bigger than atomic bombs, are in the possession of, of mankind right now. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50, we read of a change that will be more quick, um, that will happen quicker, it will be faster, it will be more dramatic, than any hydrogen bomb or atomic bomb. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And from, can you imagine the power that's required to go from flesh to spirit? What is that? I don't even know. How do you measure that? What is that? But we'll be changed with a, so where we'll be, we'll be spirit, we'll be eternal with the power of the family of God instantly in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Times are changing, and, and we are too. We are too. If we can exercise the power of change, fast and slow.